Hey lovelies, before we get started, a quick update on the All-American dress. Some sizes are sold out and most sizes are running very low. This is especially true for sizes 12 plus, I want to say like 12 through 24. As always, if your size is sold out, then be sure to sign up for the wait list. I am, I am anticipating returns and lovelies will be notified of restocks in the order they sign up for the wait list. So the sooner you sign up, the better. I do it this way to avoid the mad dash that is a restock notification when there's really only one or two for, you know, dozens of people. It's Trust me, it's less stressful this way, so just get yourself on that list as early as possible. If you're not familiar with the All-American dress, it is my most perfect version of the classic denim shirt dress, featuring a classic shirt collar, flared shape, slight puff sleeve, and gold stitching details. I also included extra considerations for modesty, like an extended inner placket for coverage between and behind the buttons. Oh, and you're welcome because it has pockets. Constructed from a durable and timeless dark blue denim, this is your year-round go-to dress any day of the week. You can view it anytime at impactfashionnyc.com. I've also included a direct link in the show notes. Thanks so much for your continued support and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. On today's show, I talk with a psychotherapist about what it was like to be the only Jewish family in her neighborhood growing up. She shares how that formed a core limiting belief in her head, the unhealthy relationship she was drawn to, and what the process of letting go of those limiting beliefs was like. Sherman's life has been a bit of a wild ride, and we do get into that in this conversation. But what interests me much more is how someone changes through challenges, and in some cases uses that information to help others. That's true in Anna's case, and she has a unique perspective on the things that hold us back. Precocious is the word my mom would would use. Very, very precocious. Um, Extremely verbal, and uh, just like so much to say about whatever was going on. Um, and, um, my parents would always say that people would like hear me talk. Like when I was like one, two, three, and they would just like stop and turn around. Like, how, how old is she? How does she know all these words? She's so verbal at this age. And now I actually have a daughter who's exactly the same way. And when she started talking at a very early age, I started to experience the same thing where people would stop on the street and be like, how old is she? She's so little. I'm like, she is little. She just, that's how she talks. <laughs> that was me. That was me as a kid. That That's awesome. Yeah. It's always funny when you see like the, the little mini me's from, totally. from, from mommy to daughter. So um, I know you as a, as a psychotherapist um, and as someone who, you know, works mainly in the Jewish community and, and, and does all of this like very interesting work around, you know, uh, therapy and all of that. Uh, in the community. And I'm so curious, what got you, what got you interested in that? What made you, what, what made you drawn to the field? Sure. So correction, actually, I don't work, I would say client wise, uh, and even student wise, because I'm also a clinical supervisor. Um, most of my clients, I would say are not Jewish. Actually, I work with all different populations, I would say maybe sometimes it's about 50% of my clients are Jewish. Sometimes it's less. 
and then the rest are a whole wide spectrum of cultures and backgrounds. Um, what got me into it? Um, so I had had a, a very rough, rough couple years um, from, I guess, about the age of 20 to 26. Uh, very difficult, very up and down roller coaster. Um, um, culminating in a pretty abusive marriage. And when I left that marriage, when I ultimately decided that I needed to leave that marriage, um, I then had a major, major shift in my life. And it's, I'm summing up a lot of, <laughs> lot of years in, a, in like a short explanation, but basically like, you know, in, ther in the therapy world, we talk a lot about core beliefs and limiting beliefs. And I basically found myself at a turning point in my life where I needed to reassess my core beliefs and um and I realized that what I really believed about myself and about what was expected of me and what I needed to do to live and to survive in my life they weren't serving it wasn't serving me at all these core beliefs and these these they were actually very limiting beliefs and they weren't serving me at all and I needed to really um reassess what it was that I believed about myself and about human nature and, um, and what life was really all about. And that's when I made that big shift. And as soon as I made that shift, um, uh, my entire reality started changing for me um, and everything started going in a completely different direction. A lot of things that, a lot of messages that people had been giving me over the years I found were actually not applicable to me. They were not true, they weren't working and had to, switch it up, find a whole new way of thinking about things. And, and suddenly things, everything just started falling into the right direction. Um, it was definitely a process, but it wasn't a, such a slow process, to be honest. As soon as I shifted my mindset, things really started moving along in the right direction. And that end, ended up, um, I would say, like a year later, I very randomly met my husband, not so random, but I, I was not looking to date or get remarried or anything. Um, a family member um, thought of my husband for me. And um, yeah, it, it really, it was a very easy, game-changing kind of experience. And life finally settled down when we got married. And um, and then that's when the next shift started happening where I found a lot of people were coming to me for help. And at the time I was not, um, I was not a therapist. I was working in the Jewish nonprofit world. Um, and a lot of people who I just, you know, friends or even, but even like not even friends, friends of friends, people who I really barely knew, they had heard about some of the struggles that I had been through and divorce and, um, you know, personal, difficulties and whatnot. And um, yeah, people started reaching out to me just like, can can we talk? Can I pick your brain? Can I get your opinion on something? Dating, this, that, relationships, family stress. And I just ended up finding myself spending a lot of time um, helping people. And, and they started talking, people started telling me like, you should do this for a living, Anna. Like, why are you not a therapist yourself? Like, you would be so good at this. I was like, oh, um, okay, cool. Um, like, 
that's a lot of school to do a master's degree. Like <laughs> I could, but like that's like a big commitment. Um, and but I was kind of ready for a change. Um, to be honest, like the not the Jewish nonprofit world in Toronto is like pretty small compared to what I was working with in New York City when I worked for Asia International. And there was like endless opportunity. And then in Israel where there was like more endless opportunity than I was like back home in Toronto because my husband and I are both from here. He's from South Africa, but he grew up a couple blocks away from me. Um, and so, yeah, I was kind of looking for a change. And I was like, you know what? I really am good at this apparently. And I do love it. And I started reading kind of more into different kinds of therapy and there, I just realized there's, it's such a diverse world out there. And like, you really get to, um, tailor your career to what works for you. Um, there's just so many options and it's really, it's, you know, it's really, it's a lot about, um, hard work and, um, and I would say like seeking out the right mentors. It's also just about um, whether you have the gift or not, whether you have that compassion and empathy by nature and you're just good at understanding and really really seeing people and, and having the patience for people. And um, um, so I did it. So I got my master's. <laughs> one, good two, three, you. just like that. Good for <laughs> um, you. It wasn't one, two, three. I got my master's, I would say within two years and I gave birth to twins in the middle of that. Oh, that sounds stressful. Oh, it was fine. It was fine. It was fine. <laughs> it, was, it was cool. Uh, no, actually, the faculty. I I ended up. I remember like um, we had been going through infertility, so I kind of thought like, well, this this could take a while. May as well just get my my master's while you know I'm going through all these you know medications and cycles. And then like a couple weeks into the first semester, I I found that I was pregnant with twins, and I was I had um very bad case uh well not very bad but I had I had hyperemesis gravidarum if you're familiar with that it's like extreme nausea plus I was carrying two so the beginning I was in and out of the hospital on an IV and I kept having to miss lectures and then finally one of my my professors I um I got into the zoom lecture I got and um one of my professors says to me nobody was on yet and he's like do you want to tell me what's been going on here because you're in and out of the hospital. So I was like, well, okay, but you promise you, you won't tell anyone? And he said, yes. I'm like, double promise, triple promise. It's like, yeah. I said, I'm pregnant and I'm carrying twins. And he was like, oh my Lord. And then I said, but you can't tell anybody. He's like, okay, I understand. And then what I found out was that that lecture was recorded. But And my husband's, Cabrusa's daughter was in the class. Okay. I know the story just gets better and better. This so is fantastic. My learns with this older man. My husband learns this older man, uh, Gavir, like a, uh, let's translate that. Um, an old guy. Like a, an older, wealthy, very uh, like prominent man in the community. That's my husband's learning partner. And his daughter, his adult daughter was in the class. So she was listening back to the lecture afterwards. She kept that secret for four months. Good for her. Wow. Until we came, we came for a second meal um to their house and and her and her mom was like oh what's doing da, 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 da. and I was like well I've been a little sick and she's like I know what's been going on and I turned sideways to show her my stomach and she started screaming and her daughter's like I knew all along <laughs> I heard on the lecture <laughs> was that when you like, found oh, out that the lecture was oh, recorded yeah, I that was oh 
well, that's fantastic. Was that the moment that you found out that the lecture was recorded when she told you that she had heard it on the recording? Yeah, because yeah, oh my, my professor promised he wasn't going to tell anyone. Like, he was just like, he just was worried about me. But like, he's worried. He's like, I know you've been in and out of the hospital every other night. But like, what's like, are you are like, do you have Crohn's? Like, what's going Like, did you find right. a disease? Like, what's going on? I was like, no, I'm just having a really difficult pregnancy. But in the meantime, you know, the Toronto community were kind of sitting and waiting to see when I was gonna get pregnant and here I was keeping this trying very hard to keep this secret from everyone <laughs> that's fantastic yeah I want to I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned this process of assessing and changing your core beliefs what yeah reassessing, I, I reassessing yeah. yeah what what was that process like like what was what were some of the things that you realized were not serving you and what was the like what was realizing that this, that whatever that belief was that had been kind of central to your identity was no longer serving you. Like I would imagine that would be very shocking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a whole game changer. Like, and people go through this, people go, like, I see people go through this, especially in my practice. I try and help people go through this, but basically what I went through is is a lot of what I bring into my practice now with my clients and basically what I wrote my my now my newly published book um that's now out on the market um the principles of this book is basically based on what my mind shift was about um and so to backtrack I had been carrying around this belief for a very long time probably since I was a little girl um, that I did not have the freedom to be who I really was. I was always going to have to try and be somebody else, um, or hide things about myself. And this came, this, I think I, what I, what I do believe this started out from is I was a bullied child. Um, we grew, I grew up in a neighborhood where we lived, where we were one of the only Jewish families in the neighborhood. Now it was a beautiful neighborhood and there were a lot of good things about it when we were very little. But as my sister and I started getting older, um, my parents started finding that like more and more problems were coming up with the, just sort of the population that we lived amongst as wonderful as the neighborhood was. And and um, one of the things was that in, in school, I was one of the only Jewish children. And for most people, it wasn't a problem at more. It was more just ignorance. But there were the odd few who had learned just some very sort of deep-seated anti-Semitic ideas. So a lot of bullying started from that. And, um, and other things, I think, just not necessarily like the Jewish being like the Jewish religion itself, but a lot of the things that just came with being Jewish, just like culturally different um, looking. I looked, I looked different than a lot of the kids because most of the kids in my class were blonde, blue eyed, um, looking kind of backgrounds. And I was, you know, dark haired, um, you know, bushy eyebrowed kind of Semitic looking kind of kid, you know? Um, and, I couldn't eat what they were eating. Like I couldn't, I couldn't eat pork chops and I, you know, bacon was just never on my radar and um, Christmas was not in my life. And um, at one point when I, I was in first grade, I had a friend who we became very close friends or we little, but you know, she was a very good friend of mine. And when she found out I was Jewish, she freaked out. Like she had been told certain things from her family about Jews and Jews are Christ killers and really, 
scary things. And she started um, panicking and screaming at me in the middle of class. And I was like, I'd never faced something like this in my life. I was like, I was crying. I didn't understand. Like, I thought this was my friend. And the teacher somehow calmed that whole thing down. But then a few weeks later, I asked her again, is it a problem for you that like, I'm Jewish? And, and she started screaming and freaking out again. And the teacher dealt with it by pulling me aside and telling me that um, it's best from now on that I don't talk about my faith and my family's background and religion because it's clearly upsetting some of the other children. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not great. Do I'm, you not, think so? <laughs> I'm not even really sure how to respond to that. Like... Now keep in mind, this is the 80s. This is the 80s. Things were, would probably be treated differently now. However, this was the 80s. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, we're not okay. talking about... Yeah, yeah. no, I, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. It, it was it was a while ago, but st- wow, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even really sure how to process that. So right. so you hear so that, that. So that was like the beginning, I would say, just being being a bullied child, being told by an adult that like, you know, you're okay, Anna, like, we love you, you're welcome in the class, you're a good student, but just don't, just don't talk about your religion too much because it's upsetting some of the other kids. So that kind of put a core belief in my head of like, well, who I really am, the essence of who I really am, my my genetic, my gene pool, the way I look, the holidays that we celebrate or don't celebrate, the foods that we eat or don't eat, this is all stuff that I need to hide or tone down about myself. Don't talk about it too much. Don't make a big deal. And if I do talk about it, then I clearly don't belong here. I'm not accepted. I'm not really wanted. So if you want to be wanted and fit in and, you know, just don't, just don't talk about it. That core belief sort of ca- it carried with me for a very long time because a lot of things happened over the next several years. Like we moved, we moved, we moved to a new neighborhood and I started going to Jewish school. I started going to Jewish day school and then I became from at a very, very young age. So that was all like, to me, it was like all everything I wanted and it was all very exciting, but it wasn't a piece of cake, like becoming from at a very young age so then suddenly that was an issue in my home because my parents although as very traditional as they were that they did keep somewhat kosher and they were traditional people having a from Shomer Shabbos daughter who you know gave up her jeans and put on a dress that also wasn't wasn't easy so then how old were you when you how how old were you when you decided to become from to become fully religious so I started the transition at 14, not transition. I started the process at 14. That's really little. It's, I would say, if anyone's listening to this, I would say that's too young. It's too young. Uh, it was the right thing for me. I never, I never went back on it, but it was. I can imagine much. that being really hard. Well, f- just for context, 14, you're in eighth grade. I was in grade nine. Grade nine. Okay. So your birthday is earlier in the year, but, um, you're so, you know, at four, you know, you're, you're a freshman in high school and you're living at home. And there are, there also, there are just elements of being fully religious that are really hard to do. If you're not in a home that is religious, like you mentioned with kosher and Shabbos and, and all these things, I could imagine that being a really 
just like a source of contention, I guess, between like, I'm sure your parents are wonderful people, but it's confusing when your kid wakes up one day and is like, by the way, can't eat anything that comes out of your kitchen. (laughs) I mean, so no, they weren't confused. They were not confused because they know, they know a lot. I have to say (laughs) they're, they're, they're not, they're not religious people, but they know an awful lot. I, I guess if you want a little context, my, my mother's father, so my maternal grandfather, back in the old country in Poland as a young boy, he was the middle child of seven. And he was, I guess, for lack of a better word, he was a Talmudic prodigy. Um, And as his story goes, um, he, at 10, at 10 years old, um, his chavrusa was 19, his learning partner was 19. And he was put into the smicha shir at 10, because there was no other the kids his age, he, he was just far, he had far surpassed them in his learning, his levels of learning. He was a very from young man. Um, they left, they escaped Poland very, very, very shortly before war, the war broke out. Um, just their family, the rest perished. And when he got to Canada, uh, that whole religious mindset kind of disappeared for him because now he was in Canada um his that's a, his that's a very was, common story it's a it's, yeah, a, su- very yeah, it's common. a super common story. he then became a, he then became a mathematical prodigy that works and graduated graduated university I think at 16 my mom would my mom would know better but yeah graduated from accounting uh second in the province um at 16 at 16 so but but growing up like with a grandfather with that amount of knowledge I I knew a lot like for and my mom my mom knows a lot like she knew a lot of halakha she knew all about like mikvah and nita and like a lot of kashros a lot of halakhos um and my dad like I he grew up in a I would say like a less traditional home but still he knew an awful lot my father just knew an awful lot and so I wouldn't say I grew up totally secular. And when I became religious, they knew what was coming. It wasn't like, what is this? They were like, oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> like, She's doing this. We know we know exactly what this is. We chose not to do this, but she's doing it. She's doing okay. it. Okay, honey, honey, we're all along for the ride. And it wasn't a surprise to them. And it was, yeah, it wasn't a surprise to them. They knew it was coming. Right. Okay. I hear that. So, so yeah, the, the context is helpful here. So you, you know, you, you start becoming religious at the age of 14 and that, that core, but you said that core belief is still there, that, that feeling of, I need to change myself or quiet. What is my true essence, I guess, in order to be accepted by the people around me, that still, you carried that through that didn't change when you weren't, when you were like surrounded by other Jewish people. Um, like a little bit, but, um, no, it didn't, it didn't, so it got a little better, I would say, but during high school, that was also complicated because I went to like a Hebrew Academy kind of school where I would say only 10% of the population was actually Shomer Shabbos and I was growing very, you know, very much the other way. Like I was becoming like more of a base Yaakov kind of girl. Um, which was really, really hard, really hard. So socially, I mean, I had amazing friends, but like socially, uh, it was hard. Um, and then I would say through, throughout high school, 
seminary and post-seminary, um, I kind of had a pattern of getting into like not like very unhealthy friendships. Now, like I said, I did have some wonderful friends. I did have some wonderful friends. I also had some very close, uh, very, very unhealthy friends. What did those unhealthy friendships look like? So I, I used to have this pattern of being drawn to a certain kind of girl who was very exciting, uh, very much a leader kind of person, um, very talkative, very smart, like, because I, I needed to be around smart, other smart people, but very controlling. And I was very drawn to girls like this. And they, in, what, I, what I realized is they, they ended up actually being very drawn to people like me because I was somebody who really went along with a lot of what they wanted because they wanted to, to be accepted. I was very like afraid of like, it was like when I was little, like I got, I got a really hide. If, if I don't agree with her, well, she's going to drop me like a hot potato. I'm not going to feel accepted. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be all alone with no friends, very left out like I was as a little girl and I can't go back there. So that was what was basically going on in my conscious, subconscious, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I think a little bit of both. And these girls, you know, they benefited a lot from being friends with me because I went along with a lot of with basically everything that they wanted and, and they, and they really could control it, but the control would get out of hand where it, would, it wouldn't just be control. It wouldn't just be like, Hey, we're doing this and you're coming along. It would also be like, Anna, you're too much like this. And you need to try and be more like this. And what, you really have a low self-esteem issue, Anna. And, and a lot of this stuff wasn't even true. It's just a lot of times people like this would get personal satisfaction or build their own confidence by putting other people down or by bossing other people around or whatever. And unfortunately, I was willing to put up with that because I felt I had to. And um, yeah. And that, yeah. Win, win for everybody. Exactly. It's no, you're right. It's the kind of thing where it's, you know, if, if you're, like you said, you're willing to put up with it. So those types of people are, are drawn to you. Um, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not a therapist and I don't want to make assumptions about your life, but I think that it's kind of, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, I think, to figure out how that kind of makes you the, uh, how you end up in an abusive marriage after that. Because it's Absolutely. the same kind of dynamic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the narrative, I will tell you, Ripley, like this, I, I actually remember this being the narrative in my head when there was like it, because, at, you know, it gets worse in your adult. Your, I, I don't know, maybe it's, it's not, not the same for everybody. But for me, I would say going through this pattern in my more adult years got more and more painful because now it was happening on a, an adult level. So the bullying continued into seminary. It continued after seminary. Um, and the narrative that literally went in my head was, well, this is just what I have to put up with. This is just what I have to keep putting up with. It's going to keep happening, Anna, and you just have to keep putting up with it. And if you ever want to have friends, you have to keep putting up with this. If you ever want to get married, got to keep putting up with this. This is, this is the narrative in my head. Now, I also found, and I'm sure you've had many conversations about this with people on the podcast, people not on the podcast. Once I was back from seminary and the whole Shadukham chapter started happening, a lot of very unhealthy messages started flying around. What were some of the unhealthy messages that you got during that time? Um, <laughs> well, 
um, where do I start? <laughs> uh, well, let me take a look at you. Well, okay. You've got a great, I mean, you're, you're really slim and you're a beautiful girl. So you've got that going for you, but don't talk too much about your family. Yeah. That pretty much sums up literally everything bad. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, yeah, you're right. It's, and, and, and you're right. We have had this conversation many times on the podcast. I've had this, I, I mean, I don't even know how many times and, you know, in, in off, off air, um, I guess we could say, but yeah, once you enter that chapter where it's, where, where the goal is to be in a couple and a lot of times I would say most, not most of the time, that seems too harsh, but plenty of times there are, there are people who are so focused on that end goal of, I need to be with someone that they lose sight of, well, that means that like, let's, let's take a step back and let's, let's, let's make sure that we're ready to be in a relationship. Let's make sure the other person is ready to be in a relationship. Let's make sure this is a relationship that could work. Let's take time to get to know each other. Let's, you know, let's take a look at the things that actually matter in the context of a relationship and not just, you know, the fact that you're pretty or skinny or what kind of family you come from. Cause those don't really matter in a day-to-day -day marriage. Um, so yeah, definitely. I can see how that would make things go a little bit off the rails. I'm curious for you, this, you know, this reassessing that you call it, did that was here's, here's my, here's where my curiosity is. And this is a, a rude question. So feel free to not answer it. Sure. But I, I mean, at a certain point you did, you left this marriage and, yeah. um, and, and you got out, which congratulations to you. That is a huge thing. And I, I'm curious if, like where that timeline works out in terms of, did it just get so bad that you said, I need to get out of this. I can't take it anymore. Or did that, had that reassessing already started happening and you realized I don't need to put up with this and I deserve better. Like how did, what, what made you have the courage to leave? I, you said from when you were 20 to 26. So I'm going to assume that your first marriage lasted around six years. Apologies if that's incorrect. No, 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 no. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay so like i'm the curious marriage, what the marriage was one year it was one year okay so what how it did was that a very extreme case a okay. very very and i'm not going to go into detail just for like i don't like for anyone knows who my ex is i don't want to like your your privacy <laughs> is your privacy yeah, is very much it. respected here it was an extreme yeah, but, it, but, no, it, was, it was a very it was a very very extreme case i would say it was a classic case of domestic abuse a classic case of narcissism in other words when i was uh dating him uh i i was like the princess um whining dining the the most the nicest restaurants uh, the the you know the most beautiful compliments always thinking about uh, you know, what I would want to do, like taking me to, you know, museums that I loved or skating, which I, I happen to love because I'm Canadian. We, we all skate. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he really, you know, he really won me over. And this to me, it was different than a lot of the other guys I had dated who were all just about like the checklist or, um, or just kind of being a bit immature and just like showing up late or taking me to like places I didn't, enjoy or not being able to hold a conversation or what, whatever it was, just things, you know, you get tired from dating after a while. Um, and so I just felt really deeply valued, which is very common in cases like this, where they know how to 
play the game where like they know how to show interest in things that you like to win you over. Um, the, literally the night that I got married was when um, the mask came off. Yikes. And, and everything. Uh, and then I was a slave for, for the next year. Yikes. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. What, what made you get out? Like, were, were you, had you already, but at the time when you were leaving this, this relationship, had you already started this reassessment of your beliefs as you call them, or did that come afterwards? Yeah, no, no. Uh, so good question. So at the beginning, I was really confused. Um, I was like, I was really confused, like what, what happened to this nice guy that I thought I married and, and he, he plays a very, you know, a very big static on the, a righteous person, uh, to the rest of the world. Um, yeah, behind closed doors, it was, it was a living hell. It was an absolute living hell. And I, I was living in fear most of the time, uh, fear for my safety, uh, fear for my, for my sanity. I just, never knew then you know what was going to happen you know from one day even one hour to the next I never knew was what kind of scary hellish thing was going to happen and a lot and I was getting some terrible guidance because we would go to um it's also very common in relationships like this we'd go to many different therapists or coaches or whatever and every time they would tell him you know you know this is a problem you need to stop or you need to whatever then suddenly oh that's not a good therapist that's not a good coach we're not going back to this so you know every week a, di- a different or every month a different person um finally uh, and I was getting some pretty um we were getting some pretty bad advice from what I would say well-meaning people like people from the community that this was in New York but you know people from the community that were trying to help or saw that I was struggling and they would you know, they'd say like, oh, you know, it's important to, you know, be patient. Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, you know, I, I was told actually by by some, a well-meaning couple that we were friendly with, uh, an older couple that said, you know, sometimes this is what God just wants of you. And it might be difficult. It might be scary, but there were many tzaddikim, many righteous rabbis, you know, that we read about who were married to terrible shrews and they stuck it out. And that was their task. That was their mission in life. Maybe this is your task. <laughs> and I was somehow like, okay, this isn't sitting well with me, but okay, I'll, 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 I'll like, I'll tolerate this for a minute. Um, what ended up happening was I made um, a very good friend through my work. Um, I worked in Kiruv and I made a very, well, I made many good friends through my work, but this was one in particular. Um, and she and her husband were still very close to this day. And she, she, what she saw right away, like she saw, she saw through the facade and, and she would see me crying. And, um, and my ex did not like me uh, going out with her, like, cause he knew she was on to, she was on. To. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, and she said, you have to get to this therapist. She said, it's actually really helped me. He's actually really helped me. Um, so I made this, so this time I made the choice to go to a certain therapist and I didn't really care what my husband at the time had to say. Um, we went once as a couple and, um, the therapist, 
I, I mean, I learned a lot from him, but he, he sat, he watched, he listened. And then at the end of the session, he said, okay, um, from now on, I'm just going to see Anna alone. So my husband at the time thought that meant that because I was the crazy one. I'm right. That's the best there. outcome. Right. So he was like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you know, she, Anna needs help. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. You can see her. So I'm like, okay, good. Fine for me. And the next six months in therapy with this, with this therapist, with this clinician, we're basically spent doing this mindset shift of like that, all this, all these core beliefs that you've developed about how this is just stuff you have to put up with. This is your mission in life. You are not deserving of anything better. This is all, these are all lies. These are all lies. They're not true. And that, that like really all I had to do was make that shift. And it's like, you can't pour from, it's like, you know, that saying you can't pour from a crack, from a broken vessel, from a cracked Mm -hmm. vessel. So it's like, his whole point was like, the bracha is always there. Like the, the blessings in your life, it's always there. It's always been there, but you're not, you're not letting it come your way because you keep blocking it with these limited mindsets that you're not deserving. And really all you have to do is make the mindset shift, get out of this toxic marriage, cut out the toxic people who are telling you that this is all you deserve. And like, once you cut that all out, you get over that fear of being alone. All the goodness is going to come your way. All the brachos, all the success, all the healthy people, all the quality friends, all the, you know, the, the career that you, that, that you really are meant to have in your life, helping people, um, supporting people like it was all waiting for me I just wasn't allowing it like I wanted I wasn't manifesting it so that was like the next six months with this therapist who I I I also I I called him a couple years ago to say thank you I said I want you I want you to know where my life is now and I have these healthy twins and a beautiful marriage and a thriving practice and he was like oh yeah no big deal (laughs) (laughs) just another day in the office that's what I do I was like no it's a big deal I'm sorry but anyway so yes next six months and then I finally, I, I, I mean, and then of course, as abusive marriages go, the abuse of obviously kept getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, yeah, and I finally said, okay, enough is enough. And by that point, by the time I left, uh, it was like, it was kind of like I was like, um, like I had like an icy shell. Like I talk about this in my book. It's like I had an icy shell on me and somebody chipped through it and it all melted and then I walked out but yeah it it was that makes perfect sense to me um I I do just want to interject for a second um if there's anybody listening who has been told by any kind of religious figure any figure at all that God wants you to be in an abusive relationship and that this is your job in life is to just uh be there for somebody else to take advantage of um email me so that I can tell you how ridiculous that is (laughs) just or me i'm I'm happy or anna that is true um there i have some choice words for that individual um that is not only is that not what god wants from you um it's dangerous and it is irresponsible and that person has no right being in any position of influence or power over anybody so just gonna put that out there uh you 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 mentioned your book which is the Empowered Woman's Journal. Um, and it's it's this really interesting concept and it's different from other kinds of, of journals. So I'd love if you could tell me a little bit more about it and, and how it works and what it is. Sure. Okay, so basically, so what I didn't get into 
with that whole story is once I, once I walked out of the icy shell, once I got out of that marriage, everything like that, that really the next, I would say not even a couple years, like within the next year, all the answers started falling into place for me. Like all the toxic friendships that I had had, they just suddenly had no place anymore in my life. Like they just didn't work because the people that weren't healthy for me didn't agree with my divorce. Right. They, like, I was like friends of mine who, who, claimed they cared about me were telling me why didn't you work harder on this why didn't you go to more therapists and I was like whoa like no 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 nobody's asking for your opinion so that that all of a sudden that was done and any kind of people that were telling me that I'm not going to get remarried because now I'm in divorce and those people were now done and I didn't care it's like I wasn't even afraid of what they're going to think or what it's like I just hush it didn't care and that's when I started developing this mindset of empowerment which is what my whole book is based on is like female empowerment and it's not about women being bossy or women being know-it-alls or it's not even about being like hardcore feminist like bra burning feminist it's not about that at all it's not about that at all it's about women having the freedom to make choices that are strengthening and that actually work for us and part of doing that is by being authentic and not putting up with things anymore that that don't work for us so not so just getting out of this mindset of like, well, this is just what I have to put up with. Like, no, no, you don't have to put up with it anymore because it's not working for you. It's not benefiting from you. It's destructive for you. And, and by putting up with so much toxicity in your life, you're holding yourself back from living how, how you're really meant to be living, from being in healthy relationships, from having healthy friends, from doing jobs that you really love, from being around, being in an environment that is wholesome to you that's part of being empowered is also just being real being yourself being authentic and there's just so many ways that people hold themselves back from it and then so many ways that they can move past that and 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 jump into it and then the other and then the third element of the book um which i also you know third element that i also really use a lot of my practice is intentional living so in other words so many people how many people are waking up every morning going through the motions on autopilot doing what they think they're supposed to be doing, doing what they think is expected of them, doing what everybody else wants of them, but they they feel nothing. They feel nothing. It doesn't speak to them. They have no purpose. Um, and this honestly can be a big um, source of what leads into depression and anxiety because if you're not living with purpose every day and you're not living intentionally, making decisions um based on what you really believe in, then it's pretty, it can, it can lead, you can, you can end up feeling really lost. You completely lose yourself, your identity, your self-worth, your value. Um, and yeah, that can easily lead people into depression. So intent, living intentionally is, um, I would say that's something that everybody deserves to be doing. Um, and I know I'm making it sound very simple. It's it's not simple for everybody. I know it's complicated. I know people deal with all kinds of challenges out there. Believe me, I see it every day in my office. I'm working with people just like you, audience, every single day. But there there always is an opportunity somewhere in your life to start building on these principles and to be heading towards a more positive um, an empowering direction. So those are the three principles that the journal is based on. And there's, it's all in, it's all in the introduction at the beginning. 
Then we talk about um, healing past trauma through practicing these elements in introducing these elements into your life, healing through past trauma, um, how the journal works. And then after that, there's six months worth of journal space, um, but it's a guided journal. So it's not blank pages. So some people, it's, maybe it's not for everybody. Some people really like just a blank journal. If you're really, if you're really into journaling, you're an avid journaler, you love writing, you might just want blank space to just write, 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 write. Um, other people find blank space and the idea of journaling very daunting and very like overwhelming sometimes when, when, when your therapist might say to you, oh, just journal. It's like, well, what? I don't know what I'm supposed to say. So, and also time, right? Time crunch. Like a lot of people are really pressed for time these days. So the, the journal that I've created, it's a guided journal. Every morning it asks a couple questions about how, you know, how you're feeling, how you're feeling, you know, where, where you felt disempowered, where you're feeling disempowered in your life. What did you do yesterday that you wanted to do different today, living intentionally, living authentically. And then there's a few more questions that you answer at the end of the day where you reflect. And then, uh, and every page has an inspirational quote from a different empowered woman, which is supposed to be inspiring for your, for that day. And then um, every four weeks, there is a break and like every month there's a break and then there's a personal quote from me something meaningful and then there's a question that I put under the personal quote another reflective question for you to think about what sort of what's going in your life a little bit more long term like more by month rather than by day and then this journal is six months worth uh and it's it's, you can, it's not done by calendar like I leave the date blank so you can fill in the date um, and then, and so far, you know, people are, are, they're finding it helpful. They're enjoying it. Um, I, I thank God. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Um, some people I'm finding, they like to look back on the journaling, you know, like every few weeks or every few months, they like to look back and sort of see the progression of where, how their emotions have shifted or the way they're feeling about themselves. Other people, um, especially if they're going through a rough time, they don't like to look back on the journaling. Sometimes at the end of the journal, they will take it and they'll burn it <laughs> as, okay. a, as a symbol of like, like letting go of that rough time and that block and that, you know, that, that rough time where they, they don't want to go back to that time in their life where they're feeling blocked, disempowered, inauthentic, and they'll burn it. And that's very cathartic for them. Um, so it's, it's really all about personal choice. Um, one thing I will say is like the feedback that I'm able to get from people who have purchased the journal that I I'm close with, like either friends or clients who are, who are working through it now. Um, they'll say, they say to me, they, they're enjoying it. Um, but it's a lot of very new concepts, like this idea of like living authentically and being conscious of it or doing living each day intentionally and being so conscious of it. It's really like, it really challenges you to, to think about yourself differently and it's a whole new thing they're they're liking it but it takes some getting used to I hear that yes if it's if you're training yourself to it's think like getting a into way. Any, it's like getting used to meditation like when you start mindfulness meditation if anyone's ever tried that it, it it's a whole new thing it takes a lot of concentration right. and like it's a commitment and then you get into it and it's like very therapeutic but it's not just like open oh, I'm like oh yeah oh meditate and my life is all better yeah not like that. <laughs> yeah, I I completely hear that. The journal Namaste. is called the, 
The journal is called the Empowered Women's Journal, a guided therapeutic journal for women looking to live authentic and intentional lives. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Anna, and I'm so and I'm so thankful that you took the time to have it with me. If uh, somebody wants to learn more about you or what you do, where can they go? For sure. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. It really is an honor. Um, to learn more about me, please check out my Instagram. It's uh, my Instagram. It's um, Anna Sherman Psychotherapist. If you have any questions or uh, you want to, um, you know, set up a time to meet with me, just shoot me a DM. Or you can also check out my website at www.annashermanrp.com. And you can also um, message me or schedule an appointment with me through there. Fantastic. And the last thing that I want to ask you, Anna, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Anna Sherman, what does it mean to make an impact? Uh, to me, what it means to make an impact in the world is to um, is basically what we've been talking about for this whole last hour, which is which is to really to really help um, help people to find meaning and value in their in themselves for who they truly are and in the lives for who they truly for in the lives that they truly are living. Um, and to, to be able to practice um, true, true self-acceptance and self-empowerment um, and to be living intentionally, because I really think that the more people that start practicing these concepts, um, the more fulfilling their lives are going to be, the more, the more we're all going to be able to support each other um, through, throughout this process. And to be honest, right now during a global pandemic and uh, crazy world changes, I really think that's what we need to be doing is, is valuing, respecting, and supporting each other as much as we can. Here, here. Thank you very much for coming <laughs> on today, Anna. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Anna, her links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, a clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.